everybody. Welcome back to the Brandon and Joe podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Nolan. He received his PhD in IO psychology from Bowling Green State University and currently works as a professor at Hofstra University, actually one of our professors. Welcome, Dr. Nolan. Bye, Sab, we've had you on here. Welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity. Great talk with you. And by the way, congratulations on all your success on the podcast. You know, you got a lot of loyal listeners, including myself. Oh, we appreciate it. Oh, it's you. Brandon and I never would have thought that, like, people would even listen so like like we're being honest like sometimes we look at like the analytics and we're like oh my god like you see these people are listening and like people have been like we like it it's not in a million years where we'd have thought so um we appreciate Very every awesome. one of you listeners <laughs> out there um but yeah so for those that you don't know dr nolan was our professor uh our first semester in fall when we first joined our od professor um and i'm not alone in saying that is one of our cohort's favorite classes like you really engage us and we've had, it's not like you're just like sitting there lecturing us that I know some people have had in the past. Um, I think it's safe to say that we all learned like a ton. Well, good. I mean, that's my job. I, I here's, here's, here's my perspective on education, man. I had to pay for my own education going through college. I used to get mad when I didn't feel like it was worthwhile. So I, when I got a chance to step into this role, I kind of said to myself that I'm going to show up every day. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to make sure that they leave there knowing something. Right. So that's my approach. Yeah, I think that is definitely something that we all felt. And I think the structure of the class itself, because we start off with such a, it's such a foundational piece to how we kind of go throughout the program. And I think that that's something that is, we can speak to for you. I know Joe and I have learned so much, just like we throw in the stuff we learned in our organizational psych class, like in regular conversation now, because it like kind of touches on everything that we go into later on throughout the program. That absolutely is my intention. So I think one of the major aims of grad school is to help students develop a, a new lens that they view the world through, right? Like you have to see the world differently after grad school. You have to take all this stuff that you're immersing yourself in for two or four years and be able to take it out and see new themes and new patterns and new ways of understanding things. And, um, you know, that's part of that aim of that class is that I always challenge the students to try to learn things more deeply and to become more involved and to try to develop that lens because at least in my experience that's been the most impactful thing in my career is having that way of looking at the world yeah and like one thing that you did in the beginning when we got there that I thought was great it was you had us look up IO career paths and as like we know that it's very flexible and fluid but just the idea of getting that mindset going is really helpful for us entering the grad program. And I wanted to kind of use that to go into our first question to kind of talk about what uh, got you into IO because I know what it was, Joe know what it was, but I want our listeners to hear how you got into IO because it was such like an inspiring story for a lot of us students. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I had a really great college experience. It was, it was, um, I had some really good social psychology professors. I loved psychology. Um, but I didn't see a career in it. Like I didn't know where to go. I wasn't exposed to IO. I knew I didn't want to do the clinical route. Like I wasn't going to be able to go into psychology and hear about people's traumas and then pretend like it didn't impact me later on down the line. So, uh, I graduated college with a psych degree and didn't know what to do. So I went into construction. Um, I took a year off. I was doing electrical construction and pretty much working all around South Chicago. I'd be on the rooftops putting in HVAC controls and going into auto zones and doing lighting. And 
you know, every time I, I went to any of these places, there was just these common themes that emerged where everybody thought their boss was stupid and everybody thought that they could run the place better and that work could be better. And, you know, you hear that over and over and over again in every different setting you go to. And uh, I started kind of get that that mindset like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I want to do something in this area. Maybe I want to do something to make like people's work experiences better. And it reminded me of a just an awesome opportunity I had as an undergrad to study abroad in Scotland. And I had a faculty member there who never introduced herself as an IO psychologist. In fact, I don't think she'd even call herself that today. I think they call themselves work psychologists. But it was a course that it wasn't an IO psychology course. It was like three different disciplines in psychology, and you got a couple of weeks to learn about each. And I just remember her talking about working in the offshore oil rigs for Shell. And it was about putting psychology into work. And I said, I'm going to look her up and see what her background was. And that's where I learned about IO psychology. And then from there, I was like, I'm going to go into this field. Um, I didn't know like I wanted to get a PhD. I just thought I wanted to go get a master's degree and be able to go out and, and help people. And when I got to uh, IUPUI, where I did my master's, I mean, I just got really lucky. I had the best faculty. They were amazing. I had uh, an advisor and uh, Dr. Crystal Harold who got me involved in doing research and had an awesome program director and John Hazer and just this lady who was an amazing mentor, Jane Williams. And like, I just fell in love with that field, man. I felt like I could make an impact and uh, it got me into it and it got me into a career that I didn't know I was going to find, right? Like I didn't know I was going to find this field. I didn't know I was going to love it. I didn't know I was going to be able to have this big impact on people's work lives. And uh, it's been good. It's been enjoyable. I like the the part of the story where you're like, I graduated, didn't really know what I wanted to do, went to construction. And then through that, you realize that you're like, hey, some people don't really like work. How can I help that out? Um, it's a common theme that I feel like as Brandon and I talk to more guests, we hear that story, how people took a gap year, went into the work field and then realized people don't like work and then had that like epiphany, like, how could I help that? Um, and it's such a great theme because I know some people feel lost after they graduate and they're like what do I do and it's harder to go back to school after you've kind of taken that break and then now having IO being like such a prevalent field is growing it's kind of like a great stop for people to look at and be like oh this is like something I can do after being in the work field uh for a little bit it's it's, it's really interesting I, I mean I completely agree I think it was I think it was your all's cohort when you came in for orientation and maybe like when I asked everybody what got you in the field? What do you want to do? I think like 75, 80% of the people were like, burnout, it's burnout. I got to study burnout in today's world. I went and I worked for a little bit. It's too much. I got to figure out how to do this, right? And I, I think that's those work experiences, those um, opportunities to see what people's lives look like after college are, are really important for shaping, you know, a lot of biopsychologists' goals for their career. Like, I think that it's interesting too, because I, I remember when our whole cohort was saying the whole burnout thing, but then I came and I sat in on the first years this year and everybody had a completely different perspective. And it's just so interesting to me how quickly IO can kind of pivot. And as a professor who's in the grad program, have you seen that uh, like as different um, cohorts come in? Do you see like different trends as they come in and come out? Yeah. Well, the trends that we're seeing are all trends that are related to whatever's happening in the current workforce. You know, when I got into the field, there was a lot of stuff with hiring. So I was in, into the hiring stuff, right? There was big decisions 
uh, about um, selection. And we saw it even in like colleges, right? There were uh, big decisions being made about whether or not you could consider race in decisions to go to med school and things like that. Um, so in, in my cohort, there's a lot of people interested in that. And then when I came to Hofstra, I think the first big wave of interest was OHP, right? So people getting into stress and understanding stress. And then after that, um, DEI became really big. And I think DEI still is big, right? It's got a lot of focus right now. Um, we got a lot of people who are interested in AI and AI and leadership. And obviously we haven't seen that in the past, but the trends just follow along with work, right? And I think your all's cohort was coming out of COVID and at COVID, I think the the mandate was do more with less across every organization, do more with less. And people were you know, stressed out from the situation just in, in the world, as well as what work was asking him to do. And I think that's kind of the thing that drove a lot of you into the field. And, and it's still something we need to address. It's still something the World Health Organization considers to be a, a really detrimental issue that needs attention. You mentioned uh, AI and ever since it's like become more important, we kind of like, I feel like we fit it into like each one of our episodes just cause it's like inevitable, like it's gonna come up. Um, just out of curiosity, do you think like class structures even maybe just at Hofstra or all around are going to change due to AI, not like assignments, but like the actual content, like you brought up hiring. And I know we covered a little bit in our selection class, but like, do you think in like five to 10 years, like the classes, like the content of like what we're learning is going to be different than what we're learning now? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think at the start of the semester, President Posner had uh, a gigantic uh, AI conference where it was like a a full two weeks of different people coming in and talking about AI and its impact in the classroom and its impact in the world of work. Um, I think it's going to shape the classroom in a couple of ways. I think one of the first ways it's going to shape the classroom is we need to start teaching people how to use it as a tool. If we ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist, then we're not training our students adequately. So we need to like start building it into the curriculum and, and saying like, what, how do we use this? Right. Um, I use it in my day. I mean, I use it in my job all the time now. I like it a lot. It's 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 a it's a wonderful tool, um, and I think there's a lot of concern around it because there, especially in academia, we have a lot of faculty members who get tenure and then they don't want to change things. They like things the way they are, and it's hard when you have come through higher education, you got your degree, you've taught for 25 years, and the way that you assess people is by like write a term paper right? That's your go-to and that's your comfortable way. But now if I, AI can help you do that, then the people who are the instructors are saying, well, what do I do, right? Like if AI can pass all the curriculum for computer science already, like what do we do to train our students? And that's going to all change. Like that's, that's what the world of education is trying to figure out. And I think we should probably embrace it. Um, Kevin Dooley, who's on our corporate advisory board, used the best analogy I've ever heard. He said, uh, he said, getting mad at AI or being afraid of AI is like when the bulldozer first came around. Nobody got mad at the bulldozer for being able to push more dirt than a human being could. We all recognized that bulldozers were valuable, but it also created this whole line of work where you had to figure out how to control it, be a heavy machine operator. And that's what we need to do. We need to start training our students to be heavy machine operators because, you know, we have more data now than ever before. We have more dirt to push around than ever before. We need new tools. And I'm not going to get mad at those tools and I'm not going to be scared of them, but it is a learning curve. Like there's going to be a lot that we have to figure out in the future. And 10 years from now, I'm going to back that up and say five years from now, we're going to see major differences. 
Yeah, those things happen exponentially. Like I I just think in terms of technology, it's gonna happen so fast. And sometimes in academia we have we see a trend where it, it ha- you have to see it you have to see it change for a little longer before it changes in academia. It w- which makes sense because it's like we want to make sure that this sticks before we completely alter and shift how we're teaching the minds of people who are entering the workforce. But I wanted to kind of also get pick your thoughts on just the use of that in work. So for example, like Joe and I always speak to using AI and we're like, okay, it's a tool that we need to know how to use because if I'm not using it, somebody else's and they're going to either get the job or get the promotion or something in those lines. But in like a school sense, it's probably a little different, but from like a work sense, what do you think on that perspective? From a work sense, yeah, it's a really interesting place right now with work. I still think we need the human oversight, um, but I can't get my this idea out of my head that, uh, you know, my new PhD student, Ophir, and I just started this project and it came out of this conversation we had where he was telling me that when he you know, he came from Baruch and he said all the people who were graduating from his master's class were using AI to create their application materials, right? Everybody's using it to make a, a cover letter or to update their resume, to spe- make it specific for the job they were applying for. And uh, my old PhD student, Jess Rigos, who graduated, was talking about kind of like this AI and, and hiring. And I, I kind of got in my head, are we at a point where like AI is hiring AI? Like we're using... <laughs> We're using AI to we're using AI to create application materials, and then we're using AI to screen those application materials. And at the end of the day, are we getting anybody good that's coming in, or are we just having AI hire AI? So that's what Ophir and I are working on. We got a quick little study where we're looking at that. But I, I mean, to me, that's the thing that but we got to figure out how to use this thing. We got to have some guardrails around it. I think for a while it's going to be a little bit of a rough road. Uh, there's going to be a lot of work redesign. There's going to be a lot of things that are changes. I think it's got a lot of potential to do a lot of good. It's got a lot of potential to do a lot of bad, but uh, we'll we'll navigate it. I want to uh, challenge your point before, and it might be a loaded question, so if it doesn't make sense, you know, just let me know. (laughs) Um, But uh, because AI, especially in like this industry at school is is super interesting. And you said like when the bulldozer came um, and we had to figure out how to use the bulldozer, you had to learn how to use this new tool. At what point is it different though? Because AI is evolving at such a rapid rate. Uh, like the bulldozer came out, and then you know we've been using it for a while. AI comes out, and then in a couple months, a new AI comes out. We have to learn how to use that. At what point is it just too much, too fast, and like we have to like limit it? But at that same time, do you limit new technology? Um, is it become just like a rapid problem? Yeah. So I'm not an AI AI expert in this, but um, it, it kind of my thought is that. I think the value of grad school and some of the stuff that we try to put into grad school is the ability to learn and the ability to be a critical thinker. And I think as long as you're a good learner, you know how to learn. And as long as you can think critically about what's being done in the context, AI can keep evolving, but we need people who can evolve with it. And maybe that becomes one of the most valuable skills to the workforce is, are you somebody who's adaptable, can learn quickly, can adopt new technology and use it for good? Right. I think that might become more and more important because you're right. This is just going to keep moving. And I think it's going to keep moving faster and faster. Right. Don't don't technologists talk about like the singularity, like everything is moving fastly in a direction to where it's all going to kind of come together into a confluence of computer run world kind of stuff. But boy, we need we still need people behind the wheel. Very true. And. You know, talking about people being behind the wheel, I'm going to use that as a segue into one of our other topics, um, flow. 
So we had Jared on this podcast. He was our very first guest, and we got to discuss flow theory with him and all the work that he's done with it. He did that work with you. Uh, so we would love to hear just kind of like what led you to doing research in flow and kind of like where that is sitting now and what that research looks like. Uh, first of all, a big congratulations to Jared. He just became a dad. You know, that's yep. fantastic for him. Welcome to the club. Um, how did I get into it with him? I was the I was the director of the PhD program at the time. And we had this guy coming into the program who everybody looked at and said, this guy's talented. He's motivated. He's going to be a good student, but he wants to study flow. Who's going to take him? And at the point I was like, all right, I'll, I'll have a conversation with him. And I remember our first conversation about it. He came in and he was just, I mean, so passionate about it. So knowledgeable, so passionate about it. And I was like, all right, I really have not studied this before. Can you, you know, walk me through it? What is it? And he's describing the state. He's like, oh, you have this really narrow attention and you're in it and you ignore distractions. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in it, you're in it for so long that you come out and you don't even know what time it is. And I'm sitting there, I look at him, I go, Jared, I don't think I want to work with people who are in flow. And he was like, what do you mean? Flow is great. And I was like, no, like, I don't think I want to work with people who are in flow, man. It might be great for some things, but like, what happens when you have a bunch of stuff to do and you get lost in one and then you neglect all your other responsibilities because you didn't think about the time? And I remember we had like an hour long conversation where at the end of it, we both went and researched this idea of can flow be bad for work? And then our very first study together was built on uh, the work of some people called uh, Wilson and Monet. Moneta, I think is how you pronounce the names, but uh, they were doing stuff about metacognitive beliefs about flow and whether flow is something you can control and whether flow is good for certain behaviors. So how do we think about the state, right? But they hadn't really looked at it with work. So I just challenged them and I said, well, let's do this. Our very first study, let's just go out and see people's thoughts about it, right? Like, do people actually think this is good for their job? And Jared was pretty sure it's going to be like, you know, very, very positive. And I was pretty sure it was going to be pretty negative. And I, I think, honestly, he was way more correct than I was, but we did see a lot of variability in it. And then that became really interesting to us. So we, we went from this idea of how people think about flow to the idea of limited cognitive resources to the idea of like nudges. And then it built into his dissertation, which I think we did four different studies and put that together. And, um, you know, I, I I think my interest in the field is 100% attributable to him and his passion for it and working with him and just what a like motivated, capable student he was. So it was just easy to work with somebody like that because honestly, he was the motor of the projects. He kept all the projects going and I just came in and provided some of that like scientific backing and threw in little sprinkles here and there. But, you know, it's a honestly one of my favorite things to study now i think it's just a fascinating idea um adam grant was published in the new york times uh, i think last year saying that you know maybe one of the the remedies for burnout is flow can we get people into a flow state and maybe if we can get them into flow states more often they'll be less burned out and we just did jared and i and, and david cassell and scott dust over in uh he's at cincinnati now and nick Rayna over at uh, virginia commonwealth university uh, did a study where we got some empirical support for that, where if we can get people into a flow state, they are less burned out. They're more mindful across things, less stressed. Um, I think that's a really neat place to be. It is a cool topic. I, we got to cover a little bit in our motivation class and a couple other classes, um, but it is interesting to learn about. When you have to try to 
get your employees into that like flow state. Do you see a lot of like individual differences between different employees? Like, is it tough to get like employee A into flow state because it's way different than to get employee B into flow state? Or can you generally do a sort of uh, whatever it is, employee engagement sort of thing, and that gets everyone into that like sort of state? No, it's a really good question. And there's not a whole lot of research on it. So, you know, the projects that we've been on are some of the first ones that have tried to create nudges to get people into flow without having to do work redesign, right? Because a big part of flow is when you're the challenge level meets your skill level, right? And that's hard to do a lot of times to get people interested in that where they have immediate feedback, challenge fits skill, they have the attention to focus on things. But we've tried to get some nudges in there uh, to get people into those directions. And, and those nudges work better for some people than other people. You know, we see that variability in there. Um, and part of the stuff that I think is really interesting about it is they do have some individual difference measures on how easy it is for you to get into flow, right? I was just saying a minute ago that some people think it's better for their jobs than other people's. And if you don't think it's all that great for your job, like if you're a forklift operator and you're like, I don't want to be in flow because I might crash or something, right? Then you, you might not be in it so much. But there's a, this other individual difference they call flow prevalence. And it gets into this idea that some people are better able to look at the full scope of work they have to do and figure out what tasks match their, the level of challenge that they can get. And that some people are better at building their skills up to be at that challenge, right? That's why we had put grit into some of our studies because grit gets it like, can you develop your skills? So they have this idea that some people are better at looking at their work and saying, this is the right type of work for me to try to set myself up in to get into flow. And then some, there's a second part where it's like, can you develop your skills in a way that when you meet that type of work and you structure it in that way, you're able to find the state. So there are absolutely some individual differences in there, um, but we need more, more research on it. Like there's really, for a topic that has become so popular in com everyday conversation, it's become an idea that people know about, the research on it's pretty sparse compared to a lot of the other parts of our field. And, and that's what makes it really fun to play around in this area. And Joe and I got to learn about flow in our motivation course with Dr. Salter and just like tying that flow to like the intrinsic motivation. And then also thinking about the idea of time loss when people are in that state and they lose track of time. Cause I, when I first thought about flow uh, in terms of that class, my brain went exactly where yours went, Dr. Nolan, where it's like, okay, like if these people are losing track of time, like, work is not just linear like that. Like there, there's so many different things that you're doing at a time. And I know personally, I fall into flow at work a decent amount when I'm like doing creative processes and stuff like that. Uh, but then I'm like, I forgot to do three other things that I need to do right now because I was just so focused on getting this project done. Um, I think that what you were speaking to is pretty um, relevant, Dr. Nolan, about like how flow can be affecting other people. I just want to know how, what kind of uh, individual differences you might be seeing for others who fall into flow. Like what, what, are, what are some of those individual difference, differences that you saw in the study so far? You mean stuff that gets people into flow or individual differences and in how they're affected by it? Can I say both? <laughs> There's a lot we need to explore about what gets people into it. Right. And, and that's the, the stuff that we did with Jared, the cognitive control model of flow. Um, partnered with that work that we just did at Exos. We just did that big four-week study at Exos that um, I'm flying out there on Tuesday to go present that at, at a conference with them. Um, we, we know that there are some things 
about people, the extent to which they've developed the skill set that's able to meet the challenge, the extent to which they're able to identify work where the challenge meets the skills and they go into it, um, whether or not they think flow is valuable. And then we have all these other things that are physiological. Like if your body, flow is an effortful state. It's hard to get into. It's hard to stay in there, even though like psychologically, we think it feels effortless and we think being in flow is like an effortless state physiologically, our bodies are aroused. If we don't have the arousal, we can't get into flow. And all that science shows that literally we have like hormone changes that bring on that physiological arousal to get into it. So there's a lot of things that we're still trying to chase to figure out how to get there. I think flow is a very elusive state, right? And it's it's something that we can't always get into when we want to get into it. And sometimes we find ourselves into it when we didn't expect to be into it. Um, and we have lots of individual differences that we need to explore there. On the back end, the stuff that's really interesting is like we're starting to consistently find results with things like engagement, burnout, uh, stress, um, even job performance is going up. It doesn't go up for everybody, though. So what we're, we're finding is that, you know, those relationships exist, but they're not like a one to one. They're not as strong as you think they would be, which means there are things that are going to moderate it. Right. There's going to be things that are going to qualify those relationships where being in flow affects some people some way and affects other people the other way there really hasn't been all that much work on it. So that's the kind of stuff that I think we still need to explore. We know there are individual differences, individual differences in terms of how beneficial it is for people, individual differences in terms of how they get into it, uh, and even whether or not they want to be into it. You know, one of the studies I read that was fascinating is that uh, concert violinists, there's a study of concert violinists, and they said the concert violinists work together to identify techniques for getting out of flow. They don't want to be in flow. Because they said what happens is if they start getting into flow when they're in practice and they start playing for hours on end, they can damage their fingers before concerts. So they say, I'm in this, I'm in this experience. How do I break out of it? Right. So it's not all good for everybody. It's not all bad for everybody. In fact, that's like one of the defining features that you see in some of the early work on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a really it's an area for a lot of study. And I think it's a, it's the time to study it right now because I think people need it. I like that part about violinist. Um, have you ever seen the movie soul? It's that like animated Disney oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. And when he's sitting at the piano, I think it's in the beginning or maybe it's, I forgot what part of the movie. And he's like, you see like the background sort of disappear and he kind of like enters that flow state. Um, is that like a avenue of research? Of, Cause I feel like I always hear like musicians saying they like, they get lost in the music and they like the time goes by. Um, could that be comparable to like flow in, uh, the workforce? Like can flow be compared across different industries like music, sports and work? Yeah. Like the history of flow is that it wasn't in work. In fact, a lot of people didn't study it at work first. It actually started with, um, musicians, artists, um, people who did adventure sports, like rock climbers. That's where, um, and I'm going to butcher his name, Chitzel, <laughs> Chitzel Mihaly. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Indiana. I've never been able to say anything that isn't, you know, one syllable long. Um, <laughs> Chitzel Mihaly. I, 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 this is where I need Jared. I need Jared to come in and translate this for me, you know. I did learn how to spell it for all the papers we wrote, but saying it's not like that. Um, but all that early work was like, why are people doing these activities? You know, and it was this idea that they're autotelic. And by autotelic, they mean we do it because we get like satisfaction and fulfillment and, and development out of them. And that wasn't work, right? That wasn't where they first started thinking about it. Um, but then they brought it over to work. I think one of the first places they brought it over was surgeons. 
right? You would get surgeons who would go in there and get so engrossed in what they were doing that they would hit the flow state. And then they were like, oh, wow, do people experience this at work as well? And then they did a little bit of um, more research looking at leisure time activities versus work. And they found that people find it a lot in work. So like the work part of it is the second chapter. The first chapter was musicians and artists, and these adventure athletes. That's, that's where the flow started. I don't remember 100% because it was so long ago when we had our first episode with Jared. So if I ask this question, you can tell me. But I just want to know like what the difference is for, uh, and if you've looked into this at all, for individuals who have like uh, neurodiversity in any sense, um, like with ADHD or anything around that sphere, because that does change how people focus and whether they might be more prone to fall in or fall out of flow. That's what, that's the first thought that comes to my mind. Like, have you seen anything with that? I've seen nothing with it. I'm fascinated by that idea. You just threw out an idea and it, it resonated with me. I was like, yes, this would be very interesting to study. Um, I think I just saw a clip on like Reddit or something like that of a neurodivergent teen who is playing piano in a big concert hall. And it was phenomenal. And it was one of these things where you said, you know, is there something else where people who are neurodivergent might experience something differently when they when they do these kind of activities where the challenge meets the skill, where it has that immediate feedback, where they they enter that state maybe in a different way or maybe more often? Um, but I will ask, uh, I'm, I'm, out of this concert, one of our, our co-authors on that project with Exos is the He's the director of neuroscience for Exos. His name's Chris Bertram. Great guy, really, really smart. And I'm going to ask him that question because he does a lot more about the brain waves and the physiological stuff. And I think that might be so give give some insight into that. Follow up follow up episode for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to do like a like a six to eight months from now, like the flow research, like kind of like all come together and we can progress like, check. Yeah, it's like literally, it's like Jared and you, Doctor Nolan, and then like at the end, and it was kind of have like flow all throughout. <laughs> Pretty interesting. <laughs> okay, one 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 day down the line. Um, oh my god, it's been like thirty minutes already. I guess you could say we got into <laughs> flow during <laughs> during this episode. <laughs> um, I guess we'll we'll have to ask our last question now. Um, so we uh don't go end up too long. Um, but we did appreciate you talking about flow. I mean, Brandon and I find it so interesting. Um, I know we, we've said it a couple of times through this episode when we learned about it through classes. Um, it's definitely like a topic that I know other, actually, wait, before I even ask the last question, um, we talked a little bit on the newsletter too, cause I know a whole bunch of other people found it in the cohort interesting, right? Yep. Yeah, we wrote, we I think we have a couple articles. Um, yeah, yeah, we did. Side point. Um, but, uh, I guess we can ask our last question. Um, with all your experience and knowledge in the IO field, uh, for those incoming IO students or people who are currently in the program, um, you have any like tips or advice for them to yeah. future their career? <laughs> I think we were joking around before the, the start off. Like I, I could literally talk about this for hours. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> tips and advice on it. Um, I mean, one of the things that is really important is surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with good people. That's one of the very first things. Choose a program. So this is just not for Hofstra students, right? This is for like a lot of listeners and people who might be considering going in the field. My number one advice is find a program where you connect with some of the faculty. Find a program where you think you're going to get a mentor, not just a teacher. Um, my career wouldn't be here without amazing mentors. 
right? I got so lucky to have Crystal Harold as my mentor in my master's program. I got so lucky to have Scott Highhouse be my mentor when I was at my doctoral program. And you just learn so much from them and they create these opportunities for you and like find a program where you think you'll find a mentor, not just a teacher. Like that's, that's really important. And then the other thing, if I'm, if I'm really limited in my advice here down to something that's manageable, the, the, the reality is there's been just this proliferation of IO programs. They're all over now. Like you can get a degree in IO from so many schools that you couldn't back when I was choosing my master's program. And what that means is we're putting more graduates out, right? The field's growing. That's great. But we keep putting out more graduates and we put out more graduates from all these different programs. And what's common among them all is that they're all going to have the degree in IO. They're all coming out with a master's degree in IO, right? Especially for like master's students, not PhD. They're all coming out with like a master's degree in IO. The advice is, what have you done during those two years above and beyond? What is it that's the value added that you can provide over someone else? And that's kind of the question that's been driving my directorship of the, the master's program since I've sat in that seat is, what are the opportunities that we can provide students to go above and beyond, to get involved? I mean, that's why we pay for your Metro memberships. That's why we pay for this partnership with ATD. That's why we've done the Hogan certification and bring that in for discounts. That's why we do the year-long um, kind of internship sequence in there. That's why we have lunch and learns of the corporate advisory board. That's why we're telling people to get involved in you know, get involved in PSYOP, these kind of things. It's all the above and beyond work. And I, I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are already doing it with this podcast. You have this above and beyond, right? Because you've recognized the value in this. And it's, there's a value in it, not just for you all, but it's like enjoyment, it's fulfillment, it's development. That's the stuff that people look at when they're making hiring decisions. In what way has this person pursued their own professional development above and beyond the classroom, right? It, it, you know, there's a lot of professional development that has to be a little bit more self-guided. It's got to be above and beyond that. Otherwise, what you get is you get a bunch of graduates who are coming through who are passive learners. They showed up in class. They sat there. They listened to what somebody said. They regurgitated that material on an assessment in a way that was good enough to graduate through, and they got a degree. Okay, now that you got the degree... What else have you been doing to build yourself up to hit the ground running as a, you know, ambitious, proactive, talented, young professional? And that's my advice. You have two years in grad school. Do it. Get involved in everything. Earlier, you said uh, you enjoyed the, in that class. I challenged you to find what you wanted to do five years out. And part of the reason I, I put that in the program or put that in the, the first class of the program is because if you're considering getting a PhD and that's what you want to do after the master's program, you're on a different track. You're on a different track. You got to get different experiences. You got to get involved in research in a different way. You, you know, there's different opportunities that you should be working towards with faculty and getting yourself prepared to enter the world of work. I think the more that you know what you want five years out when you start grad school, the more you should be programmatically building that into your two-year graduate or three-year graduate experience. Yeah, I think that's incredible advice. I'm not I'm I don't think we've had that advice on this podcast like that. And to kind of bring it full circle too, we were talking about how our cohort came in with the burnout I with burnout being so prevalent. 
Um, and that's definitely something we've seen with how you've set up this program, Dr. Nolan, is everybody's taking advantage of every opportunity in our whole program because we're all so prone to burnout. We're all also so prone to do as many things as possible. Um, I think that that's incredible advice, though, because not just the idea of when you get out of grad school, it's like there is a little bit of this competitive mindset of like, okay, I'm applying to jobs and I have to know what's going to differentiate my application versus anyone else. But it's also like the experience, because when you get that I.O. experience, a lot of it starts in grad school. So everything with the lens that you spoke to, the I.O. lens starts now. And it's how do I get experience within that lens to build my career moving forward? And I just think what you spoke to there, Dr. Nolan, is just such great advice for students to hear. Advice. I, I, I mean, I saw it. It's amazing how you kind of find out, like, these thoughts that shape it. I, when I first moved out to New York, I had a buddy from my undergrad who just got transferred from his work out here. He was working for Eli Lilly, and he was out here. And we met up, and we were having drinks, and he asked me if I would like write him a letter of recommendation to get into a master's program. And I was like, absolutely, you know, and I, we started talking a little bit more about his career because he's one of these guys that, I mean, early career success, like wild success for being a young guy. And what I realized was that he doesn't approach work haphazardly. He literally is one of these guys that says, I have a five-year plan. I know what I want in five years. Oh, by the way, here's what I need to do in year one. Here's what I need to do in year two. Here's what I need to do in year three. And by the way, if I need to do this in year one, that means I need to do this in the first month of the year, this in the second month of the year. And he's one of these guys that literally wakes up in the morning and says, okay, what are my goals for today? How do they align with my goals for the week? How do they align with my goals for the month? You know, it, everything is purposeful. And I know that that's, I mean, I don't live that. If I lived that, I'd be a much more successful, much more, uh, you know, probably burned out, man. But <laughs> the uh <laughs> At, at the end of the day, it does make sense. I preach to you all, all the time, like our resources are limited, right? If you can have focus and know what you want, that's, boy, if you can build that skill in yourself, even in a little bit of a discipline, it seems like it just makes such rational sense. I know it's easier said than done, but it's a great, it's a great piece of advice that you just had. Like having that sort of plan of action, especially as a graduate student, I know we, we, I've talked with Brandon a lot about this too. Like sometimes it's hard to figure out like what you want to do. Like we learn all this stuff and like, what do I actually want my career to look like? But if you can kind of like understand like what you like and what you're good at and have that idea of like, once I graduate, I want to go into external consulting and I start networking with these sort of people and I have these sort of skills, it, it narrows down your path and it makes everything like a little less chaotic. You have that thought in your head and you know, like, this is what I want to do this is how I do it. And it kind of, at least I believe eases everything, you know, it's everything's not coming at you from all different directions. Set those smart goals. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm going to piggyback that with one other thing though. Don't be afraid to fail. I think, I think if I can come back and look at my career, I think there was a lot of chances or a lot of opportunities where I had this huge fear of failure that stressed me out. And I probably didn't take advantage of opportunities. Like I should have been at this point where you're young, when you're doing stuff, don't be afraid to fail. Failures are, are learning experiences. And that's a lot of times where you you think you knew what plan you were going to be on. You have a, a little bit of a failure, but it's not a failure. It's a learning opportunity to pivot and take your skills in something else that fits you and that's going to drive you forward. Um, so if I'm going to offer a little bit more advice to people who are coming into the field, don't approach with that failure fear. You know, go forward in this. Extend yourself. Take on those opportunities. Um, 
you know, like I said, you get these these weird sayings from places, weird thoughts from places. I was watching College Game Day, you know, the, the football thing on ESPN. I was watching College Game Day, and they're doing this thing where they're having college kids try to kick field goals for money. Pat McAfee's giving them like 30 grand if they make it. And one of the guys they, that was going to kick, they asked him, like, are you feeling the stress right now? And the guy responded, pressure is privilege. And I said, oh, my God, that is a great saying. <laughs> like, I think when students find themselves in those situations where they feel a little stressed out about jumping in and taking it on, like taking on that responsibility, taking on that role, when you have those opportunities and you're stressed out about them, that's a privilege that a lot of people don't have. And I think if we can start building that mindset more in students, that pressure is privilege, lean into it, don't be afraid of failure and have that focus where you're going in the future. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that that mindset's super important. And my one of my mentors, uh, we had her on the podcast, Jennifer Cornelius. She speak to, she spoke to me about this idea of failing forward, and it's something that I spoke to in our uh, external panel we had recently with all the students. But I just think that's super important to not let fear dictate things because we learn from our failures, we learn from our successes, and arguably we learn more from our failures. So the fact is, is if we're going to be making these changes in our careers and going into a graduate program, failure is part of the process. And that's not to say that it's a bad thing. Not at all. It's a, it's a tough, like thought to have, like when you're like, I, I have this job, in, uh, what is it? Job interview. And like, you're feeling pretty good about it. And then you don't get it. And then in my mind, at least it's like, that was like my next two years mapped out. And now it's not there. But as you said, Dr. Nolan, you have that kind of like learning experience there. You're like, all right, maybe why didn't I get it? What, what were some interview techniques I could have? And then more times than none, what I realized is maybe it wasn't meant to be. And then a month later, you got a position that was probably even, or not probably, but could have been even better. And it's, it's that idea of what you said, like failing isn't always the worst. It can actually more, more times than not be beneficial. Yeah, definitely. And with that too, Dr. Nolan, Joe and I wanted to make sure we were able to say our praise to you on this podcast. Uh, we appreciated having you to enter the program and we're really sad we won't get you next semester, but you get a well-deserved sabbatical. So we just want to say thank you so much for you to not just coming on here, but being like a figurehead for us throughout our program. You've really helped shape our minds and how we want to come into the field of IO personally for Joe and I. So we just want to make sure we said thank you for that too. I appreciate that, guys. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's always a pleasure. I mean, that's why you're in this field, right? You're in this field to, to try to help people grow and develop. And something I'm just going to remind you of, like, yeah, you won't have me for next semester because I will be on sabbatical. But that doesn't mean, like, after you graduate, we all go away. I think, like, just a reminder to, like, the alumni, to people who are going into this field, one of the best things about going into the field of biopsychology is most of the people who are in it actually care. They care about people. They care about work. They care about development. They care about well-being. They want to see people succeed and advance. Come back and rely on your faculty, right? If you guys leave the program, you graduate, you have jobs, you have questions, don't hesitate to ask. We're still here. We don't go away when you graduate, right? We're still in those seats. We still have that purpose. We still have that kind of mission in life. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm always here if you guys got questions and, you know, even, even if they're not OD related. <laughs> well, we absolutely appreciate it. And I think we are going to put a, a pin in that uh, that flow research. And I know Brandon's definitely interested as well. We'll have to have a like a little uh, a little reunion. Maybe get Jared on full circle moment. 
that'd be great. We'll get Jared on, and I'm not sure if he listens to the podcast or not, but we'll try to get Chris Bertram on from Exos as well. That guy takes it from a different level, and he's really smart and insightful. It'd be great to have a little roundtable discussion. Absolutely. Oh, now I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, now we're doing it. It's happening. (laughs) It's already in the calendar. (laughs) Thank you again, Dr. Nolan, for coming on. Um, We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. Appreciate it. Great talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. See ya. All right. Take care. Wow. Uh, Another great episode, Joe. Dr. Nolan, I think, is someone that you and I have looked up to now for over a year um, leading our program. I think that the viewers can now see why, uh, given all the amazing advice he gave and all the brilliant stuff that he discussed in this podcast. Uh, What were your thoughts? I always love talking to him because I feel like every single time we have a discussion, whether it's in class or something like this, he's so easy to talk to. The conversation that gets generated is just great. And it's always something like, substantial like we always get to talk about something worth talking about if that makes sense um especially this episode like we got to dive into so many different areas and then finishing off with flow like we made the joke that we got into the flow state talking about flow but like it's serious um it was really really interesting yeah and you can see why like jared and him were able to do such amazing work because they both are just such great people and not just that but brilliant minds too but like we want to thank Dr. Nolan for coming on here again and all of our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you guys and we hope that you guys find the value from Dr. Nolan that Joe and I get every day in our program. Yeah, absolutely. If you couldn't tell from this episode, we have some great faculty at the Hofstra program. So if you're ever interested in IO graduate programs, um, definitely reach out. But yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, see you guys next week. <laughs>